You're listening to Making Peace with Emotions, the podcast where I share the insights I learned from a very good therapist, the late Dr. Amr Bharata. This is episode three, and in these first 14 episodes, I'm reading one chapter a week from a book Amr wrote for clients called Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. The chapter I read last week was called From Old Beliefs to New Beliefs. And that title implies two things. One, that we always have beliefs of some kind. And two, that it's possible to go from believing one thing to believing another thing. When I first started seeing Amr as a client, I was uncomfortable with the way he used the term belief as something normal, natural, and useful. He used the term as if beliefs were something I wanted. I had the same attitude as all clients with emotional problems. I believed I had problems because there was something wrong with my emotions, and that the best way to recover from my problems was to see my emotions as unacceptable and eliminate them. Amr pointed out that this was a belief system that I had acquired, and that he could help me find a better belief system. I told him that, in my mind, if something was just a belief, then it wasn't an incontrovertible fact. He replied that he wasn't giving me a belief system that was free of unanswered questions, but he was giving me one that worked. So I started therapy with a belief that beliefs themselves were to be avoided. And it makes sense why I would see things that way, given the definition of belief I'd picked up from mainstream religion. A lot of times I'd heard the word belief used in the sense of a foregone conclusion, that you decide you are going to defend regardless of whatever challenges another person, sinfully, brings against it. And the implication of that definition of belief was that honesty was to be avoided. Amr's definition of belief was basically the opposite. A belief is something based on compelling evidence. A belief is something that's good to challenge. If you think of a way to challenge your beliefs, go for it. The result can only be good. Either you wind up with new beliefs that are more useful than the ones you had, or you find that your current beliefs hold up to questioning. When faced with a persistent problem, it might help to ask, what are my beliefs about what is problematic in this situation? What is the real problem here? Everyone experiences anxiety about their health, because staying alive and functioning well is naturally a high priority for a human being. And the thoughts and emotions that people with emotional problems would like to get rid of often involve health anxiety. I spent 12 years caught in a vicious cycle of health anxiety, fueled by some beliefs that were not working to address my situation. Through exploring other interpretations of my experiences, I was able to see more accurately how my beliefs about my feelings had been reinforcing my problems and with better beliefs, I was able to recover from my problem. In my early 20s, I had an experience which was, at the time, mysterious to me. I was sitting on the couch eating tortilla chips when I suddenly had a powerful feeling that I was in imminent danger of evaporating. Not necessarily literally evaporating, but somehow fading away, becoming disconnected from the world around me. I was not able to make sense of the emotions. Well, not accurate sense, anyway. I panicked and said to my wife at the time, I'm fading away! She was alarmed and asked what I needed. I said I needed to go get some fish at a restaurant right away. Why did I think eating fish would help me? 
Well, we had been eating a vegan diet for several months. We'd become appalled by stories we heard about the treatment of animals that are used for meat or dairy or eggs, and had decided for ethical reasons to stop eating animal products of all kind. In the back of my mind, I had been wondering if this new diet would be detrimental to my health. Up to that point in my life, my metabolism had been unrivaled. I was never one for physical exercise, I never worked out, never played any sports, and before becoming vegan, I ate voraciously and indiscriminately. Bowls of ice cream every day, cans of pop is my beverage of choice. In general, eating until I couldn't take another bite at every meal and snack, with no criteria other than, is it yummy, and can I reach it? As one friend eating with me at a restaurant put it, you eat like a 400-pound man. Yet, I was skinny as a rail. My senior year in high school, I was 5'9 and weighed 115 pounds. One of my friends brought to school some instrument that was supposed to measure your body fat, and according to its reading, my body fat was just a percentage point or two above the level where you should start to be concerned. And that was easy to believe, looking at my ribcage in the mirror with my shirt off. If I had maintained that thin of a body eating whatever I wanted, I did worry what cutting out so much heavy stuff from my diet would do to me. So that night, I ate a hearty fried fish sandwich with tartar sauce and fries. For several days after that, I experienced strong waves of depression, fogginess, and anxiety about my physical and mental health whenever I felt hungry and after I'd eat. I went to see a general practitioner and was told that most likely I was experiencing something called reactive hypoglycemia. My blood sugar would get too low, and then after I'd eat, it would get too high. The doctor told me how to maintain a healthy diet and blood sugar level while eating vegan. He told me about whole grains like brown rice and quinoa stabilizing your blood sugar, but refined grains like white rice and pasta spiking it. He told me about combining whole grain rice with beans to make a plant-based perfect protein, about taking omega-3 and B12 supplements, and about eating smaller portions on a more frequent basis. He also said that hypoglycemia can be caused by stress. A belief system was starting to form about the cause of the feelings I was having. The depression, the anxiety, the fogginess, the overwhelm, these were all purely chemical events caused by eating the wrong kinds of foods and exacerbated by stress. The solution was to eat better and be careful not to get too stressed out. In other words, my emotions were not about anything, anything that made sense emotionally, but were symptoms of a mostly physical issue. This all seemed to add up. I had a blood sugar condition, maybe had always been predisposed to one, Drastically changing my diet had awakened this beast, and I'd have to be careful from now on to make sure my blood sugar stayed stable so that I could keep my mental health issues at bay. There was something abnormal and weak about my physiology, and therefore I wouldn't necessarily be able to do the same stuff as people who didn't have this problem, such as fasting, or even letting myself go too long between meals. As the years went by, my hypoglycemia would rear its head during times of stress or when I was careless about my eating. For many of those years, I made a living doing various delivery jobs, and from time to time, I'd find myself stuck in traffic and getting too hungry, 
without enough time to stop and find something without sugar or refined grains. I'd feel my blood sugar dropping. I'd feel overwhelmed, afraid my mental health was deteriorating, and afraid other people could tell. I'd either wait until I could find something to eat I believed was good for me, which felt risky, because what if after a certain point I crossed a threshold where I did some real damage, I triggered full-fledged diabetes or experienced permanent personality changes. Or I'd eat something right away from a gas station or fast food drive through that was high in sugar or without enough substance to it, as was often my only option in the years I was vegan. In that case, I'd be troubled by the same fears as if I didn't eat right away. What if the food I was eating wasn't sufficiently nutritious enough to stave off the mental illness I believed would be the result of letting my hypoglycemia go unmanaged? Sometimes, after having a hypoglycemic episode, I'd feel better after eating. Other times, I'd feel worse, like my blood sugar system had gotten knocked out of balance. I'd have to get myself back into balance by eating rice cakes with almond butter as snacks in between small, low-glycemic meals, not letting myself get too hungry, and not eating anything that would spike my blood sugar. I might need to eat this way for a week or two until I felt back on track again. Most of the time, I didn't want anybody to know I was struggling with this weakness I had. At other times, I wore it like a badge, hoping my brokenness would earn me some kind of cred, maybe as a tortured artist. I struggled with this issue on and off for 12 years. Then things came to a head. I was going through a particularly stressful period. I was in my mid-30s living with my partner Liz in the basement of her mother's house. I was DJing weddings on the weekends, a job at which I felt extremely uncomfortable, trapped, lonely, not welcome to be myself, and which came with heavy responsibility and often pitiful pay. I was having frequent hypoglycemic episodes in those days, often trying to manage them while DJing a wedding, alongside flustered brides and grooms, technical problems, and drunken guests making requests I knew would clear the dance floor. At one out-of-town wedding, Liz came with me to help me DJ. I was in the midst of a weeks-long struggle to get my blood sugar back in balance. At the wedding, I had my cooler filled with rice cakes and turkey and cheese, and I could take bites outside as needed while Liz took over for a minute. But that day, my rice cakes stopped working. Even though I was eating as right as I could, doing what had worked in the past to get my blood sugar back in balance, I still felt disoriented, overwhelmed. My head swirled with waves of depression and fear that I was mentally ill, that Liz could tell, that Liz was worried about me, that I had to prevent her from feeling worried about me, and all this while trying to be upbeat and on the ball for the wedding. I told Liz that my blood sugar issue was out of control and it wasn't responding to the usual strategies, and she was worried about me. We muddled through the wedding. Afterward, I was humiliated and deflated. I decided I needed to consult an expert. The next day, I called my friend Sarah, who is a PhD in nursing and also a type 1 diabetic. I figured if anyone could shed light on blood sugar, it was her. I told her everything I just told you. I also explained that the reason I hadn't been to the doctor was because I was broke and hadn't had health insurance for 10 years. Something about my hypoglycemia diagnosis didn't quite add up for Sarah. She told me some facts that might be relevant to my situation. One, 
stress hormones raise your blood sugar. Not to a dangerous level, but they raise it. Two, when your blood sugar is high, you can feel hungry, just like when your blood sugar is low. Three, some people are more sensitive to changes in their blood sugar than others. Four, if you're used to a higher blood sugar level, dropping to a lower blood sugar level, even within the normal range, can cause you to feel symptoms of hypoglycemia. Sarah asked me if I'd gotten a blood test all those years ago. Um, no. Pretty sure I didn't. She suggested an alternative explanation that might account better for my experiences, and a picture started to emerge. I'd feel stress, which would lead to feeling hungry, even if I'd eaten recently. During extended periods of high stress, I'd find myself trying to manage my blood sugar by eating a lower glycemic diet, which would lead to me feeling different in general, which I'd interpret as a dangerous health condition, which would lead to increased stress. A vicious cycle. Sarah's opinion, based on the information she had available to her over the phone, was that rather than suffering from hypoglycemia, I might be trying to fix a blood sugar problem that wasn't there, and feeling recursively anxious as my efforts failed to produce the effects I expected. If I took no measures beyond feeding myself as any human being does, I'd probably be fine. Since my rice cake diet wasn't working anyway, I decided to give up my efforts to tightly control my blood sugar and eat like a person who doesn't have a blood sugar problem. As Liz drove us home, I allowed myself to feel hungry and waited to eat until she was ready for dinner. As I let my feelings run their course beyond the point where I would normally interfere with rice cakes, I had a slight feeling like I was underwater. Beyond that, nothing happened. I didn't go into diabetic shock, and I didn't go crazy. Since that day six years ago, I have not had any symptoms that would indicate I have a blood sugar problem. As it turns out, I probably never did. It was my belief that feelings of anxiety and depression were abnormal and not connected to my life or what's important to me that led me to interpret those feelings as a blood sugar problem. Since getting some better information about blood sugar and about emotional health, I've been able to see that the feelings and emotions that come along with hunger are normal and are not signs of physical or mental impairment. The hunger, the feelings of stress, even feelings of irritability and overwhelm when my body is transitioning into fasting mode, these I now see as natural phenomena with meaning, a very simple meaning, namely, I'm hungry. These natural feelings are no longer something I need to manage. What a heavy burden that used to be. There is such a thing as hypoglycemia, and it can be life-threatening. So if you have the symptoms, it could save your life if you go to the doctor and get yourself tested. I wouldn't want anyone to hear this story and take it as medical advice, or to ignore potential symptoms of any health issue. In fact, learning more about blood sugar and getting tested more thoroughly could have saved me 12 years of treating a problem that didn't exist. There is also such a thing as having an emotional problem, where you interpret feelings of anxiety and depression not as having meaning and relevance to your life situation, but as problems in themselves. In my case, learning the difference between the two 
and taking into account new information that was inconsistent with my mostly subconscious beliefs about emotions liberated me from a vicious cycle that really was dysfunctional, despite my well-meaning attempts to take care of myself. One thing I learned from my former therapist, Amar Bharata, and this has been the case with my own clients too, is that people with emotional problems tend to say things like, I don't know why I'm so worried all the time, or I don't know why I'd be feeling depressed. But when you ask, is there anything you can think of that these feelings might be about? Usually the first answer that comes out of their mouth is a life situation that anyone would be anxious or depressed about. Many of us have learned to disconnect from the meaning of our feelings, especially our strongest feelings. And this leads to two tragedies. First, we can find ourselves believing we need to manage natural processes that don't need to be managed. Kind of like always being responsible for inhaling and exhaling instead of letting yourself breathe automatically. And that's an exhausting life. The second tragedy is, to the extent that we're trying to make ourselves feel differently, we're not listening to the messages our strong feelings have about what's in need of attention in our lives. Those of us with emotional problems are trying to take care of ourselves. And that's maybe something that doesn't get acknowledged enough. We care. We're trying to help ourselves. In our journey towards taking care of ourselves, we sometimes need to learn to redistribute our efforts so that we're working less on our emotions and more on what's important to us in our lives, which is what our emotions are about. It's not a simplistic process, and it helps to have a good therapist who can model what it looks like to validate our feelings until we become fluent in that language ourselves. If you had asked me in my early 20s when this problem with health anxiety was forming, if there might be a reason why I would be depressed or feel like I was fading away, I would have said no. But in hindsight, I had plenty to be depressed about. I was two years into a marriage with the wrong person, not knowing how to communicate my own needs. My life was going in a direction that didn't meet my needs, and so I was feeling negative emotions in response. But I had a belief system that wasn't working, which I inherited from the culture I live in, that the negative emotions were what needed to be worked on and not my life situation. I've been a good person who cares about myself and others this whole time, from before my efforts created a problem, during the time my efforts maintained the problem, and now, when my efforts have been redistributed and I'm no longer suffering from the problem. I've been trying to do what helps this whole time. My life has become a lot more effective since I've reassessed what helps and formed new beliefs based on better information. I'm going to read the third chapter in Amar Bharata's book now. That chapter is called Human Suffering and the Quest for Self-Acceptance. If you'd like to get the book yourself, I'd highly recommend it. You can get it from lulu.com, that's L-U-L-U, -L -U, and you can search for Amar Bharata's name, and he spells that A-M-R-B-A-R-R-A-D-A. You'll see the book on that website. It's called Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. You can get it in ebook form or in print form. If there are questions you'd like to hear me address on future episodes of this podcast, you can reach me through the contact form on my website. My website is marshallbolin.com. That's www.marshallbolin.com.
B-O-L-I-N dot com. Chapter 3. Human Suffering and the Quest for Self-Acceptance This book promotes the idea that how effectively we manage our daily existence, how much serenity we experience, and how well we can improve the quality of our lives, does not depend on making personality changes or on directly manipulating negative thoughts and emotions or unpleasant physical sensations. It does not depend on learning how to be rational as a way of replacing irrational thoughts or on being positive as a way of replacing negative processes. It does not depend on learning how to relax or breathe abdominally or be free of stress. It depends much more on the extent we are willing to be accepting of ourselves, on living authentic lives, on knowing and being more of who we are, rather than changing ourselves in some drastic ways on knowing how to live naturally and flowing smoothly with natural rhythms, on being actively involved with the various meaningful aspects of our lives, and on leading peaceful, purposeful, and well-balanced lives. We develop emotional problems when we are in constant strife with ourselves, excessively dissatisfied with who we are, excessively unaccepting of our shortcomings, and struggling vigorously to control and eliminate natural processes such as thoughts and emotions. It is these struggles that put us at risk for developing severe emotional problems. And it is these struggles that perpetuate emotional problems. When we're unwilling to experience the natural, everyday kind of suffering and discomforts that all people must experience, then we are likely to put our lives on hold and place ourselves at risk for a significant torment. We become tormented souls, thus missing out on all the wonderful and joyous dimensions of living. When we live self-accepting, meaningful, and well-balanced lives, we are in a good position to effectively manage the daily affairs of our lives, and we come to feel a great deal of serenity and satisfaction about the quality of our lives, and about what we find most purposeful and valuable. When we persistently struggle to demean ourselves for not being good enough, or try hard to control and eliminate unwanted thoughts and feelings, we live lives that are prone to extreme dissatisfaction. When we are unaccepting of ourselves, we live lives that are at odds with our authentic selves. When our lives are not meaningful or purposeful and are out of balance, we are constantly at risk of disappointment and frustration. Our physical health may deteriorate, our most intimate relationships can become disrupted, and our careers threatened. The things that we value most become severely compromised, and we can experience a pervasive loss of purpose. Emotional pain is such a common experience that it should be considered a natural and healthy part of human existence. Yet how we process personal suffering can lead to either personal growth and serenity or to severe emotional and social impairment. People respond to traumatic events in different ways, so that the degree and quality of the suffering can differ greatly from one person to another. To some, the suffering is not only manageable, but provides an opportunity for learning and personal growth, while for others it can lead to unmanageable emotional problems. Styles of Coping The belief system that is favored by emotionally troubled people can be summarized this way. I hate the way I'm feeling. There is something wrong with me. I shouldn't be feeling this way. 
My feelings and thoughts don't make any sense. They're abnormal. They're mysterious. They're weird and unusual. They're unacceptable. I can't stand them anymore. They have lasted too long. They have to stop. I have to control them and get rid of them and do so right away before they become permanent. I have to get rid of them and completely so that they never return again. This is very difficult to do, so my efforts have to be intense and determined and vigorous. I have to put an end to negative thoughts and feelings and physical sensations and replace them with positive ones. I have to be rational and eliminate irrational thoughts. I have to get rid of negative thoughts. I have to figure out this problem completely because once I understand it completely, I'll get rid of it. In its successive form, this style of processing is prevalent in the self-talk of people with emotional problems. It does not vary too much from person to person, except perhaps in degree. It is highly persistent, highly autonomous, and operates mostly outside of awareness. It reflects a belief system that is highly implanted in the subconscious mind. For the sake of clear identification, I refer to this belief system, this style of processing thoughts and feelings and memories, as A-talk. There's another style of dealing with our feelings and thoughts that is based on a very different belief system. It is basically the opposite of the one just described, and is not favored by people suffering from emotional problems, who often express surprise that anyone should think this way. I refer to this style of processing our thoughts and emotions as B-talk. In its regular form, it sounds like this. I don't particularly mind feeling sad or anxious. The way I'm feeling makes a lot of sense considering my experiences and my life history. There's nothing abnormal or weird or mysterious about the way I'm feeling. It's not an indication that I'm defective in any way. My thoughts and feelings are acceptable. Whatever I feel or think will last for as long as it needs to last. I will allow it to run its natural course. I don't have to change my thoughts and feelings or manipulate them in any drastic way. I really don't have to do very much about my thoughts and feelings. The quality of my life depends on being accepting of myself and going on with my life in ways that are meaningful and purposeful. Self-talk. It is common for us humans to talk to ourselves silently about what is going on in our lives. Our minds are commonly engaged in a private chatter, sometimes referred to as internal dialogue, about our thoughts and feelings, about things we observe around us, about events we experience, about our various relationships, and about the people and values that are close to us. We identify the things we like or dislike. We describe the things we find aesthetically pleasing or repulsive and we recognize the values we admire or disdain, and the goals we want to achieve or stay away from. Much of this internal mental chatter has to do with describing, recognizing, and identifying the things that are going on in our lives. And much of it has to do with interpretation. For example, we are continuously assigning negative, positive, or neutral values to just about everything we experience or everyone we're acquainted with. We can also identify things that are meaningful to us and differentiate them from things that are of marginal importance in our lives or are irrelevant. But we also do something more complex than all that. We talk to ourselves about how we want to manage ourselves and our lives. This is the executive part of our minds that helps us evaluate ourselves and the world around us 
and provides us with instructions on how to cope with our thoughts and emotions and with the events and people in our lives. The decisions we make with our self-management and coping styles can go a long way in determining the quality of our thoughts and feelings, of our relationships and careers, and of our lives in general. ATOC The rest of this chapter will focus on the dynamics of ATOC, which is a very common way of talking to ourselves about how to interpret and manage the affairs of our lives. A very significant difference can happen depending on how we use the ATOC. It is almost always helpful when we use it in a regular, moderate kind of way. We shall refer to that style as regular ATOC. On the other hand, using ATOC excessively can have an extremely detrimental effect. We shall refer to that style as excessive ATOC. Let us examine the difference between the two. Regular ATOC. We use regular ATOC on a daily basis when we need to regulate or control some aspect of our lives, when we need to be active, when we need to challenge ourselves, when we need to motivate ourselves to engage in necessary but undesirable tasks. A very common effect of ATOC is arousal. When we need to be effortful in attending to difficult tasks that require physical strength or mental concentration. For example, we use ATOC when we need to motivate ourselves to attend an unpleasant social event or study for an important exam. We might tell ourselves, I hate studying for this exam, but I have to do it if I want to graduate. When we need to concentrate well while working on a difficult project. When we need to protect ourselves from harm. When we need to cheer ourselves up by engaging in activities that are fun or pleasurable. When we need to shame or reprimand ourselves for having violated a personal value. For example, I should be ashamed of myself if I fail this exam. We also use it when we need to guilt ourselves. For example, I should blame myself for having said something that hurt my friend's feelings. We use regular ATOC on a daily basis for routine, mundane chores and activities, such as getting ourselves out of bed in the morning when we feel like sleeping in, driving to work, meeting the challenges of a regular day, exercising, fixing dinner, taking care of children's needs, or even replacing a light bulb. We wouldn't do any of these things if we didn't give ourselves instructions to do them. Of course, much of the time, we are not aware that we are giving ourselves any instructions, because the process works on its own. It works subconsciously, and is activated very quickly. And much of the time, it also works efficiently. With regular ATOC, we give ourselves instructions about how we should interpret and cope with events in our lives and with our physical sensations, feelings, thoughts, and values. An example of regular ATOC is when you are experiencing physical pain, tell yourself you want the pain to stop and take medication for it. We use regular ATOC when we direct the major aspects of our lives, such as determining how we seek the best education that is available to us how to promote our physical and mental health, how we choose high-quality careers and relationships, how we find good homes to live in, how to protect and provide for our children, and so on. We use regular ATOC so extensively in our daily lives and so automatically and subconsciously that we are seldom fully aware of what we are telling ourselves about what's going on and how to manage our external and internal worlds. The fact that it works autonomously is a really good thing, 
Otherwise, we'd have to pause before doing anything in order to give ourselves instructions on how to proceed. Here are some more examples of regular A-talk. I'd like to stop feeling sad. I'm going to keep busy so that I don't dwell too much on my grief. I'd like to perform well. It's not okay to be late. I don't want to think badly of my friend. I need to study hard for the exam. I need to do well on my homework. I want very much to give a good presentation. I want to do a good job on this assignment so that they give me a promotion. I will do my best to give a good impression. I'd prefer to not have these negative thoughts. I need to hurry so that I can get there on time. I'll do my best to be a successful employee. I want very badly to solve this problem. I need to take good care of my health. I should have three balanced meals a day. I need to avoid toxic people. I hope to learn from my mistakes. If I don't do it perfectly, I'll at least try to do it as best I can. I would very much like to get over my emotional problems. Regular ATOC is basically a very useful set of strategies. And the examples just given are familiar to all of us. Without these kinds of instructions, we wouldn't manage our lives well, if at all. With them, we are constantly doing our best to take care of ourselves, to keep ourselves safe, and to improve the quality of our lives. But serious problems happen when ATOC becomes excessive and persistent, and when it is used in an indiscriminate, inappropriate, and highly generalized manner, so that we use it automatically even in situations when it is uncalled for. Keep in mind as we move forward in this book that emotionally troubled people are not at all fond of regular, moderate ATOC. They have a strong commitment to use ATOC excessively. Excessive ATOC. In comparison to the sample of regular ATOC given above, here are corresponding examples of the excessive use of ATOC. Please compare them to each other. I have emphasized the words that clearly indicate the use of excessive ATOC. I have to stop feeling sad. I've got to keep very busy so that I don't even think about my grief. I must always, under all circumstances, perform well. It's never acceptable to be late. I've got to stop thinking badly about my friend. I've got to put a lot of pressure on myself to study for the exam. I have to complete my homework perfectly. I have to give a flawless presentation. I can't make any mistakes on this assignment. I must make absolutely sure that I give a good impression. I must not have negative thoughts or feelings. In order to be on time, I have to drive very quickly. If I want to be successful at anything, I have to work very hard and exert a lot of effort. I have to do a perfect job of solving this problem. I can't make any mistakes in taking care of my health. I should find the perfect diet and stick to it come hell or high water. I have to completely stay away from people I don't like. Making mistakes is completely unacceptable. If I can't do it perfectly, I won't do it at all. I've got to get rid of my negative thoughts and feelings. This excessive use of ATOC is sometimes appropriate. For example, sometimes we need to make a very strong effort in order to get a job done that is very meaningful to us. But when the use of this self-talk becomes persistent and indiscriminate, when it is not used occasionally and selectively at the appropriate times, 
we run the risk of repeatedly irritating ourselves and persistently maintaining high levels of arousal and aggravation, so much so that our minds and bodies become overly burdened and overly charged, and start to overreact at the slightest stimulus. People suffering from emotional problems try very hard to live lives that are free of blemishes or imperfections. Persons might tell themselves that they have to be the most successful people in their job, or be extremely wealthy, or constantly be in perfect health, or have perfect spouses, or highly accomplished children. The constant barrage that they inflict upon themselves leads to a state of constant stress. There is little room for imperfection, for making mistakes, for occasional failures, for being average, for living naturally, for being at peace with themselves. People who habitually use ATOC in an excessive, indiscriminate, and highly generalized way are at risk for developing emotional problems. They are persistently likely to shame themselves and cannot tolerate perceived deficiencies. They often say such things as, I never do anything right. My life is a hopeless mess. I can't continue this way. This has to stop right now. I must not allow myself to be depressed. I must stop feeling anxious. I can't allow myself to make any mistakes. If I don't achieve my goals right away, I'll never achieve them. If I cannot control my feelings and eliminate my negative thoughts, they'll go on forever. If I can't do something perfectly, I won't even try. As this kind of self-talk becomes habitual, so do the troubled feelings become habitual. It is the habituality of this kind of self-talk that leads to the chronicity and the troubled nature of anxiety and depression. Bothered versus Troubled An important distinction should be made between being bothered by our negative thoughts and feelings and being troubled by them. It is very natural to be bothered by a negative emotion. A negative emotion is not supposed to feel good. It is supposed to feel bad. It is supposed to bother us. The role it plays is to bother us until we attend to whatever it is that is causing the negative emotion, resolve it as best we can, and then we stop being bothered. It doesn't necessarily work perfectly, but that is how it generally works. However, the emotions and thoughts of people with emotional problems are not just bothersome, they are troublesome. We become mentally troubled when we put enormous pressure on ourselves to eliminate negativity in our thoughts and emotions. We become troubled when we persistently and effortfully scold ourselves for engaging in imperfect behavior, and when we try vigorously to eliminate or control anything about us that we perceive as uncomfortable or impaired in some manner. A critical difference. Here are some examples of the difference between using ATOC in a regular kind of way and using it excessively, persistently, effortfully, and indiscriminately. Regular ATOC. If you have done something that has violated your values, it's a good thing to shame yourself to the appropriate degree that is called for. For example, you've squandered a lot of money through gambling. It might be a good thing for you to reprimand yourself as a way of motivating yourself to stop the behavior. Otherwise, you could lose a lot of money. Excessive ATOC. But it's not a good idea to shame yourself unreasonably, such as when you've done nothing wrong. Feeling intense sadness for a long time after a major personal loss is natural, but problems arise if you repeatedly shame yourself for having these feelings. What is significant is that shaming yourself vigorously for feeling sad is not just a response to your feelings. 
it becomes a major factor in causing you to develop a state of persistent depression. Regular ATOC. If you have certain thoughts that seem unacceptable to you, it might be helpful to question these thoughts in order to make some adjustments to them. For example, if you have a thought about hurting someone, you might tell yourself that hurting someone goes against your values, that you're going to stay away from any such behavior, and so there's no need for you to continue thinking about it. Excessive ATOC. That is very different from telling yourself that even having the thought is extremely unacceptable, and you must stop having the thought completely, because if you don't stop having the thought, you will act on it. You must manipulate your thinking so that the thought never occurs. This is exactly the thinking that leads to obsessive processes. If a person feels angry at someone, he might tell himself that the feeling is dangerous and he must eliminate it. Obsessive-compulsive people engage in this kind of thinking on an ongoing basis. The more they try vigorously to control unwanted thoughts, the more persistent and troublesome the thoughts become, which leads to a vicious cycle. Regular ATOC Let us say you are at a large shopping mall and you are not feeling well. You are tired and aggravated by the noise, feeling alone in the crowd, and don't want to be there. So you decide to leave. Not a totally uncommon situation. You might tell yourself, I'm not feeling too well, I think I'll go home. Excessive ATOC. That's very different from, I shouldn't be feeling this way, I can't stand feeling this way one minute longer. You show little tolerance for your discomfort. You might also tell yourself you shouldn't leave, for that would be cowardly. As a result, you are neither free to stay nor are you free to leave. You are trapped. Such feelings of entrapment often lead to panic. I can't stay and I can't leave is a double bind, for nothing is acceptable. There are no acceptable options. There is no freedom or flexibility, no willingness to have negative thoughts, and no allowances for being human. Regular ATOC. Let us say you have a chronic physical ailment that is impinging on the quality of your life. It makes you feel miserable every day, most of the day. With the regular use of ATOC, you motivate yourself to seek medical attention, and you try to follow your physician's directions to the best of your abilities. You give yourself instructions to take good care of yourself. Excessive ATOC. Again, it is very different when you tell yourself you have to be perfectly successful in getting over the pain, and do so quickly, otherwise you'll have the pain forever. You won't accept the pain if it persists, even when it may be improving. You might berate yourself for not being sufficiently motivated for doing everything that needs to be done to get rid of the pain, and go on to seek help from one physician after another. And you might berate yourself for feeling bad that you are in such a chronic pain, not seeing that the chronicity of the pain may be due to the severity of the physical condition, and even to some extent due to the way you are mismanaging it. You are no longer bothered by the pain, but are troubled by it. You are no longer suffering, but in a state of chronic torment. The Dynamics of Excessive ATOC Generally speaking, the excessive ATOC of emotionally troubled people involves three main parts. Shame. They shame themselves unreasonably for being, quote, defective in some manner. They see negative thoughts and emotions as abnormal, mysterious, and eccentric. Non-acceptance. They are unaccepting of themselves for these perceived defects. They find it difficult to be authentic with themselves and allowing themselves to have uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and memories. They are not receptive to negative thoughts and feelings and are unwilling to experience everyday human suffering. 
perfectionism. They exert a great deal of effort to change in radical ways, trying hard to eliminate and control their perceived defects. They have a hard time relinquishing control of their thoughts and feelings and letting them be. Instead, they seek a perfectionistic approach to managing their lives, such as persistently raising their expectations, thinking in all-or-nothing ways, and speeding up. They spend large chunks of their lives abiding by the creed, the more the better. They see their lives as a performance that needs to be lived as perfectly as possible and are persistently seeking approval of others. The following are specific examples of excessive ATOC. Try to observe how much of it you regularly engage in. Since these thoughts are part and parcel of your present belief system, you will at first have a hard time seeing them as causing problems. But try to see the connection between them and why you feel so persistently miserable. The first cluster of excessive ATOC revolves around shame-related beliefs. There's something terribly wrong with me. I'm defective. My thoughts and feelings are abnormal. They're impaired. My thoughts and feelings are very eccentric, very unique. No one thinks or feels like I do. My thoughts and feelings cannot be explained. They are caused by mysterious processes. They do not make any sense. My thoughts and feelings are very irrational, very negative. They're stupid. They're ridiculous. They're crazy. My inability to relax, to feel good, is caused by a deep physiological dysfunction. I should be ashamed of myself for having this problem. I should have never allowed it to happen. The second cluster of excessive ATOC revolves around the notion of unacceptability. My thoughts and feelings are unacceptable. I should not allow myself to have thoughts that are negative or irrational. I'm not willing to feel anxious or depressed. Failure and imperfection are unacceptable. I will not give myself permission to have an emotional problem. Otherwise, it will go on forever. Three, the third cluster of excessive ATOC is the most complex and revolves around perfectionistic beliefs. High expectations. I have to constantly set up high expectations. Otherwise, I'll be a failure and a loser. The higher my expectations, the more I will achieve. I need to make sure that I do everything well. I must never engage in defective behavior, such as avoidance. I need to make sure that I have perfect thoughts and feelings. I must not have irrational thoughts. I must not have negative feelings. There's no limit to the amount of effort I should expend into doing something. The more, the better. The harder I try, the better results I will get. If I put my mind to it, I can do anything. All or nothing thinking. I either do it right or not at all. If I can't be sure I'll be comfortable, I'm not going. There are only two ways of doing anything. You either do it well or you don't do it at all. You either succeed or you fail. You either feel good or you feel bad. You either win or you lose. You either use the maximum effort or do nothing. You either get rid of this problem or it will last forever. Speeding up. I have to stop feeling anxious right now. I have to get over this depression right away. The faster I do it, shopping, driving, etc., the sooner I will stop feeling anxious. Whenever I get anxious, I have to relax immediately, otherwise it will never stop. I can't waste any more time on this problem. The faster I do anything, the quicker I'll get there. Control and elimination. I have to control my thoughts and feelings before they get out of control. I have to stop all bad thoughts and get rid of them. I have to keep constantly busy. 
I have to constantly put my mind on something else. I have to stay away from all arousal. The way to stop feeling miserable is to have happy thoughts. The more I worry, the more control I will have. I have to stop worrying. The way to get rid of anxiety is to replace it with relaxation. This style of coping directly promotes chronic states of depression and anxiety, chronic hopelessness and helplessness, persistent troublesome panic episodes, and ongoing physical and mental burnout. It leads to other processes, which will later be described in detail, such as vicious cycles, which are the direct outcome of excessive ATOC. For example, the more you try to control anxiety, the more anxious you get. You get anxious about being anxious, which leads you to, to try to control the anxiety even more, which makes you even more anxious, and so on, until the anxiety develops into a big problem, for example, by becoming chronic and acquiring an autonomous quality to it. Besides vicious cycles, we will also talk about self-fulfilling prophecies, which explain why people keep experiencing the very things they are trying hard to avoid. Double-bind thinking, which accounts for why emotionally troubled people are constantly feeling trapped. Disequilibrium, which explains the extremely unbalanced way of life that emotionally troubled people live. And burnout, which accounts for the state of extreme emotional, mental, and physical exhaustion that plagues emotionally troubled people. Okay, thanks for listening, my friends. I love that book, and I hope you do too. I get something new out of it every time I read it. Feel free to reach out to me if you want to give me ideas of things you'd like to hear talked about on future episodes. Next week, we'll read Chapter 4 from Making Peace with Anxiety and Depression. And that chapter is called Putting Life on Hold, Complications and the Need for Simplicity. Until next time, peace.